So we have now covered three and a half years of Christ's public ministry while upon this earth. But the most important events, as far as our salvation is concerned, are about to unfold in the following chapters. As we progress in John 18, we're going to see Jesus' betrayal by Judas Iscariot. Then we'll watch as Jesus is put on trial. He'll stand before the Jews. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles for trial. Then in chapter 19, Jesus will be scourged. He'll be mocked, crucified. But aren't you glad it doesn't end there? Three days later, we have John chapter 20. Jesus rose again victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And God's salvation has been made available to whosoever will call upon Christ for salvation. Now I want to read verses 1 through 12 today from John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, which was a, where was a garden into the which he entered, and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and of officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh hither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, Of them which thou gavest me I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it out, and smote the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into thy Sheath, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? And then the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. And so as we entered chapter 18 last week, we took note of the significant symbolism that is found in verse 1 as Jesus crosses over the brook Kidron. I closed last week by quoting Psalm 110 and verse 7 where the Bible prophesied of Christ saying, He shall drink of the brook in the way. And Jesus went by the way of the brook Kidron as He was heading towards the cross. And He drank of those bitter, sin-filled waters for us. We also saw in verse 1 that Jesus and His remaining 11 disciples entered a garden, which we know from the other Gospel writers is the Garden of Gethsemane. John doesn't record the prayer time between Jesus and His Father while in the garden, but we briefly touched on it last week. Remember that Gethsemane means oil press. And it was the place where they would extract the oil from the olives. They would press the olives. Usually there would be a stone wheel in which they would roll over that and it would extract the oil from those olives. And we took note of the symbolism between the olive press and Jesus who was being pressed out for us and that he was being so pressed that his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. And his precious blood was beginning to be shed for you and I. And I encourage you to take the time to read and study the account that would take place between verses 1 and 2 of John. 
Read the prayer that Jesus prays. Read what the disciples do. Study that out for yourself. I want to save that for another time in here. But you can read about that in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. Shortly before the Last Supper, in John chapter 13, Judas Iscariot had already planned his betrayal of Christ. In Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16, it says, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priest and said unto them, What will ye give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. And if we were to continue in Matthew's account, Jesus says to his disciples, The Son of Man goeth as it is written unto him, But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. But Judas doesn't heed the warning. And in John chapter 13, Jesus told His disciples, It's going to be one of you that betrays Me. And they began to wonder who it was that would betray Him. And John the Beloved asked the Lord, Who is it? And then in John 13, verses 26 and 27, Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when He had dipped the sop, He gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. And upon that command, Judas, and Satan for that matter, immediately went out into the night to put his betrayal into action. Remember that when we were in chapter 13 and looking at that event, we remarked about how Jesus is in complete control at all times. He had the power over Satan to command him to go. He said, Satan, what you're doing, go do it quickly. And immediately he got up and started doing what the Lord said to do. And for just a second, can I detour from our text and remind you that Satan never shows you the end of your rebellion. Satan found a vessel to use in Judas Iscariot. Satan used him up and spit him out. While John doesn't record Judas's demise, I'd like to read it to you from Matthew's account, chapter 27, verses 3 through 5. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself, and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went out and hanged himself. You see, after Satan left Judas, Judas recognized the magnitude of what he had done. But he never got right with God. He repented himself, but he didn't repent to God. And he never got right with God, and he went out and he hanged himself. Listen, you don't have to convince people that have gone through some difficult times like Judas went through there. You don't have to convince them that they're guilty. They know it. Judas knew he was guilty. He just didn't get right with God. And what we see oftentimes is we see people and they get caught up in things and they get used up by Satan and then when Satan leaves, they begin to look at the situation and realize what they've done and Because they're without God and without hope in the world, they think the best answer is I must take my life. 
That's the awful end of someone used by Satan. That's just a quick side note for you to ponder. So during these events of the latter parts of John chapter 13 through John 17, during that time period that we were studying, Judas was out there readying for his betrayal of Christ. We'll see in just a minute in verse 3 that he had received a band of men and officers of the chief priests and Pharisees. But before we get there, let's look at verse 2. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. And we see that the Garden of Gethsemane was a place frequented by our Lord and his disciples. And by way of application, I wonder if you have a place where you frequently meet with the Lord. It'd be good for you to have a place. Amen. Is there a place where if you can't be found in public, somebody close to you knows where you might be in private because that's where you spend time with the Lord. And I'd encourage you to have such a place where you frequent with the Lord, a place where you pray, you read your Bible, and you fellowship with God. See Austin Miles in 1910 pinned down these now famous words of the hymn, In the Garden. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And He walks with me and He talks with me and He tells me that I am His own. The joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. It'd be good for every child of God to have a special place where you meet with God without distraction. As the hymn writer alludes by saying, while the dew is still on the roses, I believe that you ought to make it a practice to meet with God in the morning hours before the responsibilities of the day overtake you. And you put it off and say, well, I'll get to it at night. And then you're so exhausted by the end of the day that you're asleep before your head hits the pillow and you never do get in the Word of God. For me personally, I routinely spend time in our garage with the Lord. And it's not because I'm a gearhead. Amen. I can't fix anything. And I just mentioned, I go to the garage, I just mentioned that to you. It doesn't have to be anywhere spectacular. You understand what I'm saying? It doesn't have to be this garden. It doesn't have to be something that's all dressed up. and It just has to be special to you. It could be the dining room table, so long as you're without distraction. Um, now, it was difficult for me to sit out there during the winter months, amen. I'd have a little space heater right next to me, and I'd put my hand over now and then to warm up. But thanks to a very generous gift card I received for Pastor Appreciation Month. I now have a quality hunting blind set up. Amen. I don't even hunt, okay? But it's set up in my garage, and now I can turn a heater on in there. Now I can spend all year out there with the Lord. Amen. And uh, I call it my dog pound, my D-A-W-G, my dog pound. And um, so have somewhere where you can meet with the Lord. I hope you have such a place. Do you frequently spend time with the Lord? Do you? Do you spend time with God by soaking in the Word of God? Do you spend time fellowshipping with God in prayer? Well, Judas knew where Jesus often resorted to spend time with His Heavenly Father and also with His disciples. And just think about this for a minute. Judas would have been one who accompanied Jesus during those times of sweet fellowship. He was counted as one of the twelve and he would have been there with them. That's why he knew where it was. He, and that's why he knew he resorted there often. And imagine betraying somebody in their sacred place. One preacher likened it 
to having an affair in your own marriage bed. According to Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable and all on the bed undefiled. And he made this observation, it's bad enough to break your marriage covenant by going off to some remote place. But how much worse is it that you would do so even in your own marriage bed? And as he brought that out, it really kind of hit me just how, how intimate this place must have been for Jesus and his disciples as they met with the Lord and they met with each other. And I think that gives us the idea here. And listen, it hurts to be betrayed, but doesn't it hurt more when it's somebody close to you? When somebody that was within your own company, who will not only corrupt a sacred place, a holy place, but will also take your bonds of friendship and just shred it. Psalm 41.9 says, Yea, my own familiar friend, in whom I had trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. In Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14, it says, For it was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me, then I would have hidden myself from him. But it was thou, a man, mine equal, my guide, and mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked into the house of God in company. Verses 20 and 21 of that same psalm say, He hath put forth His hand against such as be at peace with Him. He hath broken His covenant. The words of His mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in His heart. His words were softer than oil, yet were they drawn swords. Judas was a familiar friend. Jesus and Judas ate bread together. Judas was Jesus' acquaintance, and they did take sweet counsel together as they walked into the house of God together. But Judas lifted up his heel against Jesus. He broke his covenant with him and the other disciples. And when he comes to betray Christ, his words are smoother than butter. But war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Matthew 26, 48-50, it says, Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And this brings us to verse 3 of our text. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. So we see Judas received a band of men and officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees. Or and of the officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees. And there, there's some debate here on who all is included in this group of verse 3. Is it Jew and Gentile or is it just Jew or what's going on here? Well, the Greek word for band implies a Roman cohort. And obviously the officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, they would have been Jewish. But I believe it's likely that here in verse 3, this group is made up of both Jew and Gentile. And I say this, number one, it because it was both Jew and Gentile that betrayed Christ. We were both guilty. Amen. Number two, I say that because when Jesus stands before Pilate, the first words Pilate's going to ask him is, Art thou king of the Jews? And that's important because the Jews, they hated Jesus because he was, a, he was against their religious bigotry. He was against their 
religious oral traditions of men which had corrupted the Word of God. And listen, that was their livelihood. That was their pomp, and that was how they were recognized. And they didn't like them because of that. But the Romans, they didn't care much if Jesus and, and the council, if they had some sort of religious wranglings going on, that wouldn't really bother them so much. But what they would hate is if they felt one was going to rise up against Rome. And if word started to spread, hey, there's this man, and he's calling himself the king of the Jews, or at least that's what they were saying. There's this man, he's the king of the Jews. Rome then would have got upset with that, and they would have said, oh no, nobody's going to lead a sedition against us. And so now they hated Jesus because they feared that he might lead a rebellion against Rome. And it's unsure what the size of this band would have been in verse 3, but most place it well into the hundreds. Just think about that. Now, the most common number on the low end is 200 men. 200 of these men come out against Jesus and these 11 disciples against 12. And, and they come armed. They must, have, they must have thought certainly that they were going to be armed as Jesus and His 11 disciples. They come with weapons. And what's interesting to me is these men, they come with their lanterns and their torches and they're seeking for the light of the world. And I've already given a message entitled Imposters. Almost exactly a year ago from John 13 verses 18 through 30. And I preached about those who can look like Christians but are not. Just like Judas Iscariot. You can look the right way. You can talk the right way. You can know all the right things to do. But that doesn't mean you're in Christ. I don't want to preach that again, but I want to highlight, look at how far back Judas has gone here. I mean, he was, he was an imposter before. Judas, who was one of the twelve. But now, we see he's the one leading the evil mob. Can you just envision how far back this guy has gone here? And listen, Jesus didn't have many friends. But he had plenty of enemies, both religious and civil. And I want to tell you this morning, true believers have never been the majority. Ever. We've always been hated by religionists, hated by the world, and maybe without the except, you know, maybe an exception of a brief period in American history, we've always been hated by the civil, the civil majority. And if you aren't taking this election seriously, you need to take it seriously. I'll talk just a little bit more about this tonight, but our civil freedoms are not only on the ballot, but our religious freedoms. And if you think COVID-19 persecutions were something bad against some churches in some states, then you wait until the progressive liberals get a chance to unleash their agenda on this nation. Come on now. I'm telling you, pastors need to start preparing their people. There's coming a day when we're really going to have to stand. And I can tell you this, don't place your trust in a nation. It's already a drastically different nation than how we were founded. And I think I can make the argument in my short 43 years, it's already drastically different than when I was a kid. But I want to tell you also, the propagation of the gospel is not dependent upon a nation. 
Because if God be for us, who can be against us? The church of the living God will march on. But listen, I hope you're ready to stand for your faith. Because it might get worse. And it might get worse in a hurry. It's already bad out there in other countries. We've just had it so good for so long, we're just now realizing, wait a minute, what? Who knows, the day may come, they may come with torches and weapons, if you will. And I can tell you that if the day comes in America that they outlaw biblical preaching against sin, I will still stand up and preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. And if they ever try to say, you've got to shut your doors, they're going to have to do so forcefully. Because I have a biblical mandate. We also have a constitutional right. Again, I'll say more tonight. But I hope you're ready to stand in these last days in which we live because 2020 was a warning shot fired across the bow of Christianity here in America. We understand our hope is not in the White House, but our hope is in God. But I'll tell you, I'm still going to vote in the manner in which I believe will give the gospel the best chance to have free course. And I encourage you to do the same. Let's get back to our text in verse 4. It says, Jesus therefore knowing all things that should come upon Him went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? And I just need to mention again how Jesus is in complete control of all that is unfolding. And just the same way, God will be in complete control Tuesday night if the, if the results are announced Tuesday night. He'll still be in complete control, amen? Whatever happens. And I believe this, God's going to use whatever happens for His glory and our good. I believe that. And we, and we see that Jesus, he, he knows all things that should come upon Him. And this is important because we need to understand that Jesus wasn't murdered. But Jesus willingly laid down His life for us. This wasn't an accident. They come to Jesus and He asked them, Whom seek ye? He knew exactly who they were seeking for. <laughs> Whom seek ye? But it does show their purposeful sinfulness in this act. And in verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And don't you just love verse 6? Boy, I sure do. As soon then as he said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Wouldn't you have loved to see this take place? That had been awesome to be there that day. Like up in a tree somewhere, you know. Likely some two hundred, maybe more men went backward and fell to the ground as Jesus gave His answer. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that would have made me stop and scratch my head and think, maybe we need to rethink what it is we're doing here. Maybe this is more than just some ordinary man. But of course, that doesn't happen. And in verse 7, after they fall to the ground, and I I don't know if I should find this humorous or not, but I do. I love how Jesus asked them again, Whom seek ye? <laughs> I don't know. Can you picture that? And I always wondered, you know, did he ask that and they answer it while they were still on the ground? You know? <laughs> I'd imagine they'd gotten up back up by this point, but it's just kind of humorous to envision. And amazingly, they give the same response Jesus of Nazareth. And now we see their stubborn sinfulness. Jesus says in verse 8, I have told you that I am He. If therefore you seek Me, let these go their way. We're told in verse 9, the reason is so that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which He spake, of them which Thou gavest Me have I lost none. And in Jesus' response, 
we see the greatness of our King James Bible. If you have a King James Bible, and I hope you all do, you'll notice that the word he is italicized. And when you see an, an italicized word in the King James Bible, it is, my understanding, I, out of all the ones I've looked at, the King James is the only one that does this, does this italicizing. When you see an italicized word in your King James Bible, it means that that word was not in the original text, and our translators needed to put that in there to help us read it better so it reads more smooth. And in this, we see the integrity that our translators had with the King James Bible. Because no other Bible does this. No other Bible makes an attempt to say, I'm going to show you what words I, I didn't see in the original manuscript. And so we see the integrity of these men, but they wanted us to know which words were original and which ones were added. Now, I said all that to say this. If you remove the word he, then Jesus' response was simply, I am. Now, that ought to do something to you. For those of you who know some of the names of God in your Bible, you know that I am is one of those names. Next is chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. And remember what Jesus said to the religious haters in John 8.58. Jesus saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. And listen, they knew what He meant in John chapter 8, because immediately after that verse, they took up stones to kill Him. And here's Jesus letting the mob who's coming at Him know He's the one they're looking for by saying, I am. And there's such power in His name. They fall backward and to the ground. We not only see how Jesus is in complete control, but do you notice how Jesus is all-powerful? Nothing was going to prevail against Him but what He allowed. And I want you to keep this in mind. Nobody can advance against Christ. Jesus will always be victorious. And He will always prevail over His enemies. And all He has to do is but speak to have victory. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 And then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of His mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of His coming. Revelation 19.21 And the remnant were slain with the sword of Him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of His mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. The Bible says that Jesus, when He opens His mouth, it's as if a, two, a sharp two-edged sword is being used. He's just got to talk it. Listen, I can talk a lot of trash. I love smack talk, amen. You put me on the court, I might be losing 30 to nothing. I'm still going to be talking smack. Jesus... What he says, it's the truth. And all he's got to do is speak. People fall before him. There's one last thing I see here that I want to point out to you. We not only see that Jesus is in complete control, and we not only see that Jesus is all-powerful, but would you notice Jesus is being very merciful. 
Here's a mob. They have torches and weapons. They're coming after Jesus. Jesus could have wiped them out in an instant. But instead, with this strength He has under control, He only causes them to go back and fall to the ground. In Matthew 10.28, He said, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear Him which is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. Jesus had that power. He could have destroyed their body and their soul in hell at that instant. But He doesn't do that. Rather, in the power of His name, He only brings them to the ground. Philippians 2, 9-11 says, Wherefore God hath also highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things of under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now these men did not bow their knee before the Lord. They went backward and fell to the ground. But Jesus was being merciful because He was giving them another chance. Do you hear what I'm saying? He was giving them another chance that they could bow their knee before it was too late. And who knows if some of these in this mob watched the events of the crucifixion unfold. And maybe they stood off a little bit and they watched as the Son of God was raised up between heaven and earth. And maybe they heard as Jesus cried out, It is finished! And who knows, but maybe one of these men said like the centurion, Truly this man was the Son of God. Perhaps they who were there that night who arrested and bound Jesus, they heard that the one that they had captured and the one that they had put on a cross, that this one, they started hearing rumors that He was alive. That He wasn't in the grave. And maybe they went by the tomb. And they saw that empty tomb and they began to wonder, truly, this man was the Son of God. Or perhaps that these men, listen, get this, perhaps that these men, when they came to arrest Jesus, the other gospel accounts tell us that the disciples all forsook Jesus and fled. And maybe some of these men who were there that night all of a sudden saw the transformation of the disciples as after Jesus was raised again and He ascended back to the Father and they were observing these disciples and they noticed, wait a minute, those are the same men that ran the night that we apprehended Jesus. And now all of a sudden, they don't care what persecution, they don't care what tribulation, but they're out there preaching the gospel of Christ. Maybe they saw their boldness. And they said, truly, that man was the Son of God. I don't know. But could it be Jesus was being merciful to these men because He wanted them to have another opportunity at salvation? You understand how merciful our God is? Listen, are you without Christ this morning? The only reason you're still alive because God is merciful to you. He's giving you opportunity to be saved. He wants you to repent before it's too late. But just because God is merciful today doesn't guarantee your tomorrow. 
And if you're without Christ, you're literally playing with fire. You know, the Bible says there's only one day that you can be saved. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee, or have helped thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Are you still without Christ? Today is the day of salvation. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed in your next breath for that matter. Are you still without Christ? If so, what are you waiting for? And if you sense the Holy Ghost is drawing you to Christ, you need to come and you need to ask God to save you. Maybe there's somebody here and you're like Judas. You have successfully blended in with this church body. You dress the part, you act the part, you talk the part, say the right things, you know when to nod. But maybe you're without Christ. Maybe you're still living in rebellion to God. Do you know God still wants you to be saved? I'm going to pray here and I'm going to ask for anybody who doesn't know Christ that you might come forward and let us help you. Maybe you just have questions. We want to answer those questions. And perhaps the message spoke to you in a totally different way. I never underestimate the working of the Holy Spirit. Amen. But God is being merciful to you, giving you space to repent. Let's pray.